0: Welcome to Bad Patient. Now, practice makes perfect. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Bierce. And we are two non-medical, non-experts sifting through this
1: week's health news. And this week's words are depression, Ebola, 2.4 million babies, and
0: hangover. And this week, we are both in the same state, although not in the same city. So, podcasting for the first, uh, maybe the third time from the same time zone, which is pretty exciting. It's very exciting. You know what else is exciting? What? I am sitting at my childhood desk. Like the desk that I had from when I was like, I don't know, five years old, like all the way through school. And I can't say that I ever like did all that much homework at this desk, but I really like the setup of it. It's like a desk with a comfy chair and then it has this like little thing that sits over the top of the desk and there's like a little cork board. And if I were the type of person to work at a desk, this would have been perfect. And I remember liking it as a kid and I still like it now. Well, that's good. You were at least very consistent.
1: Yeah, I know what I like. I have two updates. What's going on? So uh I signed up for Nurix prescription for birth control. And oh! I have gotten three months supplies and I feel like I ordered it a month ago. <laughs> so, wow. So, uh, what was that? Like a discount program? It's it's for it's it's just done online, uh, purely online, and there's no oh, uh, I remember no doctor visit required, and it's sent in a um, discreet envelope, and it's uh, this one, at least the one that I'm getting is shipped shipped by Shippo, and it has a little hippo on it, <laughs> and it's cute and adorable, and yeah. I keep I keep getting them, and it feels like a lot, but <laughs> I'm building up my reserves, so that's good. And yeah. my, my second update is I've heard from it's it's all of us allofus.org uh they Free invited fitbit. I haven't gotten a fitbit yet but they invited me to give my consent to share my shit with them and I did it and they had some uh-huh. really nice videos and it was uh it was really easy and I signed electronically on my
0: computer so that was fun so what was the story, like, for people that didn't remember, we covered this in, like, one of our first episodes, right? Yeah. So it was, like, they're
1: going to give away 10,000 Fitbits for research purposes, and the purpose, the research should last more than ten, 10 years or more. And it's possible that they will ask me to come in to get my measurements and take, like, a blood or urine sample, or both, or saliva, and and my dna and i can uh, wave to give those uh things but it's going to help research to determine what makes us similar and what what makes us different
0: and so if other people want to sign up the website is all of gov. so just all together like all of gov. and well what do you have to do to get the fitbit i don't
1: know but I've signed all the things. But it's like <laughs> if you have a Fitbit recorder, if you have something, you can share it with them. And if not, they may provide one for you.
0: So oh. I
1: I have signed up and I'm waiting for my Fitbit.
0: That is super cool. And I guess you can also just go to all of us dot org by itself.
1: Yeah. Not that it's like super important, but my husband has uh through his work has like they have discounted prices for Um, different athletic things like the Fitbit, and you can get, like, the fancy one, like, you know, $30 off or whatever. But, like, the cheapest version of it, it's $5. And I told him, no, that seems like too much. But I really want this (laughs) free one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So $5 is $5 too many, but if it's free, you're into it.
1: I'm all in. Let's let's research the shit out of this.
0: Man, I wanted a Fitbit for a while because I won one at a health journalism conference but it was the wrong size and so I didn't end up getting to keep it and then I got like I got a sports tracking watch the brand of which I refuse to share because the company while reputable is like so heavy on social media advertising that I refuse to give them any more promotion but it has been super cool to like to see like how my heart rate changes with exercise and like all the things that I imagined would be cool about it are cool about it so shock of shocks I have more data now than I had before and I like it that that doesn't surprise me one bit so right. are you gonna like if they want a blood sample or something are you gonna go do it e- yes that sounds so much like a no
1: well like blood sample it makes me a bit skeevy but it's for research and so maybe
0: so would you do it if you got nothing like because you're not getting anything right unless they give you the foot which they may or may not yeah I mean mm. for science for science
1: Maybe i don't I know do
0: it okay i don't have any objection up. to it i'm just like concerned about like like one more thing and like time yeah sure it's i it i as a participant in
1: a long-term study Oh. Uh, know that they don't fucking contact you that often
0: <laughs> oh yeah it's oh, like what mu- it might be like once studies. a year yeah so okay let's do this all right fair enough
1: All right, you ready for our first article? I'm ready. Okay, our first article comes from your favorite website, my favorite website, everyone's favorite website, WebMD. (laughs) Oh, man. Come on. (laughs) And it's depression striking more young people than ever. So, um, our americans are fast becoming very depressed and a new study showed that the uh there has been a spike in major depression in recent years especially among teens and millennials so this is pulling data from um it looks like uh health insurance for like people who have been diagnosed and receiving treatment for it and Yeah, so- i think
0: it's it's Looks like it's Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, which I assume is just the that I, that's more than one or maybe maybe that's one entity now that represents a merger from the past, but they're just looking at diagnosis rates. So that's kind of interesting. So they're not looking at like self-reported data or they're like, that's the science of it, right? Like a doctor has to say you have depression and diagnose you with it. So you have to go to the doctor first. Yeah, so if the rate it's, is going up, that could mean a lot of things.
1: And it's major depression, not just depression.
0: Yeah, so clinical depression. Yeah.
1: So there's a huge uh, variation between states. It's up as much as three hundred percent between states. It's high as six point four in Rhode Island to lows of two point one in Hawaii and three point two in Nevada. I'm not sure what that says about Hawaii and Nevada and Rhode Island. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: what's wrong with life in Rhode Island? And,
1: um, they're different in, among cities. Um, Topeka, Kansas is the high from 6.8. And Mm -hmm. Laredo, Texas is a 1.5. And
0: I want to say that's right on the border.
1: I want to say so too. Uh, women are twice as likely as men to be, uh, have major depression at six versus three. Um and so this like depression has major impacts on the rest of your life. So you're more likely to be unhealthy, and it's more likely that it costs more to have uh to treat you for your other things if you have depression. So kind of can uh it's no It affects, affects every portion of your life. So there are a couple of suggestions for what causes that. Um, they're saying that screen time, uh, contributes to depression and young people oh, are no. more likely to use screen, t- screens and stuff, uh, which just feels like something old people say, so yeah. I'm not biased at all. Listen yeah, to my and- podcast!
0: <laughs> exactly. And don't you think that some of this is just, like, a bias in reporting? Like, men tend not to report emotions in a in a medical visit women are more likely to be seen as emotional and therefore screened for depression there's less of a stigma for younger people so if they're feeling anything at all i think they're more likely to bring it up so i don't know to what extent i feel like i mean i'd be worried about this as a society-wide problem i don't know that i see it as a millennial gen z young person problem even though i know the numbers support that
1: yeah but as a millennial i I think I'm a unique so uh unique individual, and therefore uh your things don't apply
0: to me, so <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, there's also that, yeah, I don't know, I mean, and I think that like just modern life in its very essence in some ways is kind of like depressing, like we're living lifestyles that are more socially isolated that are less physically active that involve less time outside. That involve like less social connections like not as much sense of community i mean it's like all the hallmarks of i mean those aren't clinical depression right but like right that's like, those things i like, can but can that's help de- trigger it
1: that's like what this is, is major depression i feel like that's
0: like dysthymia the, yeah like
1: i feel more depressed in the winter time than i do during the summertime and i think that i may have um uh, some sad, you know, or sure. I just am not as active in the winter and therefore that makes me feel more depressed or whatever. Yeah. But I've, I've never seeked a diagnosis. So that's just, you know, webmding it. Um, <laughs> so, but like that, what I feel is not major depression. Like it, it does not impact my ability to function throughout the day. Um, it might make it more, like, it impacts my evenings more when I'm just, like, I just want to go home and go to bed. Um, yeah. But I, I don't have a difficulty going to work. I don't have difficulty doing most social things. Um, but if it's optional, I just am not going to do them. Not because I have any depression. It's just that I'm social. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that's fair. And I think there's, yeah, there's some aspect of, like, like seasonal, like, mood dips and stuff that may not qualify Um, I think, I think that the diagnostic criteria for major depression involves like symptoms that last for two weeks that are like, that last for two weeks or more. I don't remember. I don't know that that's like, yeah, okay. It is. I'm looking at the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. So the DSM is the, what does it stand for? Diagnostic Standards Manual. Anyway, it's like a book basically that describes every mental disorder and what symptoms are associated with it. And they update it periodically. And the DSM-5 was like super controversial for all sorts of reasons, but it did. This is like the tangent on the tangent that I always do, but there was some stuff where like they were classifying um, homosexuality as like an illness or so they've clarified and adjusted and fixed some of that. But anyway, there's all sorts of controversy, but I think that the two week having certain symptoms over a two week period is like, is is a diagnostic criteria for depression that I think has been in most of the recent versions. I think it was at least in four and five. I'm not that familiar with the DSM three because, like, I don't even know when that came out. <laughs> you know, as it was like in the past. Time. As before I got in, before before I got into my diagnostic criteria research, so I just, you know, but I think one of the things that's interesting about about like major depressive disorder versus like um, like low level depression, dysthymia like kind of everyday, nah, 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 you know, like sadness and things is that it can just be, it can be insomnia. It can be tiredness. It can be like feeling worthless. It can be, you know, it can be a lot of things that aren't sadness. And I still think as a society, we think depression equals sad. And for so many people like depression equals numb, depression equals not sleeping, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's a very good point. So talk to your healthcare providers. <laughs> I know, like especially on this one. I honestly feel like there is is an epidemic of depression in middle-aged working men that's gone like kind of totally unnoticed cuz I just don't think we that's where that's like where the group where people don't want to talk about it. I think men are really like discouraged in a way from talking about those types of feelings so like this i like i see this and i know that that in this article depression striking more young people than ever i know that the data is most likely accurate i just i feel like this isn't the whole story
1: not the whole shebang
0: yeah yeah
1: all right you ready for our next article yeah so it comes from the new york times and it's Ebola erupts again in Africa. Only now oh, no. there's a vaccine. So, uh, Ebola has erupted again in the de- uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, it's the ninth outbreak since the virus was discovered in 1976, and uh, health world health officials are making are moving unusually swiftly to contain the outbreak. So, um, within two days of the laboratory confirming that the virus had killed two people, um, in a remote province of the DRC, um, the country's health department, along with doctors with the World Health Organization and the Doctors Without Borders, were able to reach, uh, the town and, um, the outbreak epi- epi- epicenter. Um, and so there two is. Two days. A- yeah, um, so if you don't remember, Ebola is um, a very scary disease because it kills half of its victims, um, and it's very a very horrific uh, way to die because there's bleeding from or- orifices.
0: It's just like a massive hemorrhage, right? Yeah. It's like you basically bleed to death, and it's so, um, contagious, right?
1: Yeah, as of Friday, 32 cases uh, with Ebola symptoms and 18 deaths had been reported in this newest outbreak, which they think started Mm -hmm. in early April, Um, but it wasn't confirmed until this past Tuesday, Um, and then it talks about how there are some very remote places, and this is one of them. Uh, It's 500 miles upriver from kinsasha uh and it's reached by taking roads that take two days and requires four river crossings by ferry there's an (laughs) there's an airstrip but it's too decrepit and overgrown to allow for supplies to be flown in um Uh. it is more than three hours away from Kaliko kiliko i pinji i'm pretty sure i mispronounced that i apologize um which is um traveled over dirt tracks usually traversed by motorbikes. So
0: it's <laughs> so really we're not exactly like packing people out via ambulance.
1: Yeah. So it's it's a really hard place to reach. But um for the first time since um this is the first time that it's been has an outbreak where we have a vaccine. So um you may remember um there was a outbreak in mm-hmm. um Guinea Liberia and Sierra Leone, um, where it infected more than twenty five thousand and killed over eleven thousand. Um, so, different money and, has been, yeah, supplied from um, WHO and from uh, the United Nations and from the country itself, as well as um, some it's philanthropic uh, places yeah. from the British. British and, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also gave money. So the, it's the first time that the new Ebola f- vaccine has been able to be used, um, which has been found to be a hundred percent effective in field tests. Um, wow. but by the time that it had come out, um, it, the, most of the outbreak had been controlled with like, con- um, quarantine procedures. Um, yeah, I
0: mean, they were, like, developing the vaccine as the disease was actively killing people, so I think the last time it well, was, like, too late. The
1: the disease was discovered in 1976, and they've been working, they had been working on a cure ever since, but there was a much critical, more critical need, um, mm-hmm. partly probably because um, it showed up in the United States, you know? So,
0: <laughs> Oh, exactly. You know what I sometimes imagine is like when they say, we've been working on this continually since 1976, that it was like one person in a small windowless room. And they were like, listen, like, give this Ebola thing some thought. And then at a certain point, it becomes, you know, there's a bunch of people dying. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, okay, okay. And they open up a lab and they're like pouring all these resources into it. You know, I don't think it's like, any kind of coincidence that eleven thousand people died, and we have a vaccine a year later, right? But then, they, but they say like, "Whoa, we were working on it continuously." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's like working on it, and then there's like working on it, right?" Mm-hmm. So, um, but
1: so I just thought it was interesting because it's you know it was huge and scary and terrifying, and it was you know going to be, um a bigger epidemic and we had visions of uh, a post-apocalyptic world happening all around us (laughs) because of the Ebola virus. And, um, you know, uh, you had the scenes of like World War Z and um, the Last of Us video game where you're, (laughs) I don't know why the people uh, in my head were like attacking other people, but like, you know, like in those post-apocalyptic worlds they always are.
0: Yeah, it's always zombies. Like whatever whatever illness like ends the world, something always happens and there's zombies, right? Doesn't matter what it is. It could be an ear infection, it could be like bubonic plague, there's going to be zombies at the end of the world. Like that's all we know, right? Mhm. I think the other interesting piece here is that the vaccine is unlicensed, which I think is the global equivalent of like in the US if it's not FDA approved. Right. So, they have what, like, there's some emergency stockpile of 300,000 doses of this vaccine, but technically, in order to use it, they're going to have to, like, declare it an emergency? Like, the World Health Organization is going to have to declare it some kind of emergency? Or the government, uh, like, the Congolese government, the article is saying, would have to, like, call it a clinical trial? So, which just means that the U.S. is even farther away from getting approval. Although I'm sure that I think I want to say that they used a vaccine on someone last year. Wasn't there yeah. like a nurse or something who they brought, they brought to Atlanta to the CDC, like something like that.
1: Yeah. But it would have been in 2014, honey, you're old. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> That
1: wasn't last year. Huh? It was not last year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. A lot of things um, that I think happened in the last year, like happened in the last five, Five years. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. God, well, hopefully, like, they get this out there before there's another, another, like, outbreak.
1: Yeah. I think they're getting, they're reacting much faster to it because there was such a, yeah. it, it got out ah! of control
0: so yeah, much. Yeah. Listen, the article, the article does say that the, the development, The vaccine was in development for many years before 2014, or as I call it last year, but no (laughs) one paid for clinical trials to prove that it worked. The trial that proved it effective was organized only in the 2014 epidemic's waning days. So, they were sitting on it, yo. They were sitting on it. Yeah. Well, there just wasn't a need. Yeah. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. It is somewhat sad that 11,000 people died, right? But that's cool. Maybe we should, like, build more bombs and stuff. Or, I don't know, maybe we could, like, put money into this type of thing so that, like, the next 11,000 people could possibly live. Because it's not just the 11,000 people. It was then another 14,000, right, that were severely ill. I mean, this wasn't like a walk in the park. This was, like, made the flu look like a good day, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay
1: you ready for our next story? Next story. Our next story comes from CNN.com, and it's, He donated blood every week for 60 years and saved lives, the lives of 2.4 million babies. So this is a... Whoa. This is a story about a man in Australia, uh, James Harrison, um, is retiring. Um, he donated blood for every week for 60 years, um, and he uh according to the red australian red cross blood service he helped save the lives of more than 2.4 million bod- babies so there's a thing that can happen to pregnant women that if their um this is my interpretation of what they're saying um if their blood type is different than their baby's blood type and it's like their second pregnancy it can cause the uh, mother's body to uh, view the baby's blood as a foreign um, entity and try to attack it. And that that can be super deadly for babies. Oh, but this, this is
0: rhesus disease.
1: Yes. But this man's blood um, had something special in it. Uh, had anti-D injections. He had antibody in which... They used to create anti-D injections. Um, so he switched to... Um, switched over to making blood plasma donations to help save as many people. So they used his blood um, to create, uh, like, a, a thing to help the mothers um, carry their children to term. So... Before him, it was up to, like, 17% of women in Australia were at risk, and he helped save a lot of lives.
0: Wow. Wait, my question is, like, I thought that you could only donate blood every eight weeks. How can he donate every week without having problems? I don't know. I looked this up, and the Red Cross says, you must wait at least 56 days between donations of whole blood... Or sixteen weeks, which is one hundred and twelve days, between power red donations, which I think is what people call donating double reds, and I am not sure exactly what that means. Oh, but platelet apheresis donors may give every seven days up to twenty-four times per year. I don't know what platelet apheresis donor donation is.
1: I don't know. Do maybe they made an. I, you're me. I am not the expert in anything, Robin. I don't know. Maybe they made an exception for him because he is super super duper golden mm, but it would still have to be safe for him
0: i mean he's australian maybe that's the difference so platelet phoresis is the process of collecting thrombocytes more commonly called platelets a component of blood involved in blood clotting maybe the he terms- didn't give
1: typical blood maybe because they were making a anti d oh, vaccine it. or something else
0: so I think the deal is this, whatever platelet donation, they separate the platelets from the other portions of the blood and they return those to the donor. So I think the deal is that the, the platelets are involved in clotting, but you can donate platelets probably more often, I'm guessing, because they're only taking out a portion of your blood as opposed to like draining it straight out of you, right? They like, they take it out, they separate what they need, they put the rest back in you. That's what I'm thinking. Sure. So, but, he's uh, won,
1: yeah, so he's won a lot of awards for his generosity, the Medal of Order of Australia, one of the country's highest, most prestigious honors, and he said that his talent is, uh, being a blood, do- blood donor. Um, he Aww. gave his last donation, because in Australia, you can't donate blood past the age of 81. Wow, what a so guy. that's why he, that's why he retired. So... He's helped save millions of babies.
0: Aww, so it's almost cool. like they need to like find the thing in his blood and like find a way to synthesize it or something, right? Because they said he's one of maybe fifty people in the country with this with this blood that they so desperately need for these babies. Mm-hmm. Aww,
1: but I thought it was a it was a Anti-D. good story.
0: Yeah, this is a great story. I wonder even why his, his, 81?
1: He, he, I don't know, somebody decided something somewhere, and 81 was decided. Um, it's probably a, an administration thing, not a medical thing. Um, the But it also, he donated, and his, um, his daughter needed it in order to give birth to his uh, second
0: grandchild, it looks like. So... Oh, interesting. And he said he started doing it because he needed a transfusion himself. When he was 14, he had, like, some kind of s- chest surgery. And they're saying that the transfusions he got after that surgery may be the reason that he produces this anti-D, like, life-saving whatever it is. The thing is, I don't even understand, like, rhesus disorder. I mean, I, I understand from your description. It's like, baby has blood t- one blood type, mom has another blood type for some reason that can happen like she's got she had a rhesus positive baby in a previous pregnancy and then that
1: well if she had so it's it, the baby can have a different type of blood type because the blood type could come from the father yeah and then the mother with the second pregnancy the the body th- thinks that the blood type should match and when it doesn't it freaks out okay that's my very like, scientific explanation of what, <laughs> what it is.
0: Rhesus disease. It, so weird. Oh, and it is, you know, like, rhesus monkey is, like, what I thought of when I first heard it. It is named after the monkey. I'm not really sure why, but that's what Wikipedia tells me. So it must and be so, true. So it must be true. No, okay, one time there was a study that compared the accuracy of Wikipedia to the accuracy of Encyclopedia Britannica, and Wikipedia won. And I'm, I need to, like, find that study because I've told so many people about it that I really – I feel like I need to make sure that, it's, that that's actually right, you know? Question, so. was that on Wikipedia? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? No, I don't know where I heard it. It's been years, though. I sometimes get into, like, a bad habit of, like, a statistic or something sticks in my head, and then I just don't – I don't, like, update it because it's, it's something, like, so charming or so interesting that I just tell everyone about it and then I'm like, wait a minute, Like, is that even true anymore?
1: Well, you know, 82.76%
0: of statistics are made up on the spot, right? <laughs> I've heard that. But it sounds, <laughs> when you give me a specific number, it just sounds right, so I believe you. Yeah, absolutely. I like this dude. All right, so what is this dude's name? I feel like we should make sure James, we mention James Harrison. James Harrison, the man with the golden arm, who donated blood every week for 60 years get it james yeah james Woohoo! proud of you man
1: <laughs> all right you ready for our last article yeah so it comes from fortune and it's hangover pills shows promise in lap tests oh my god money maker so uh there is new research that's coming out from a professor from ucla uh who has been working on a solution for the negative effects of alcohol and he said that he has been testing the, the um, lab mice and it shows promising <laughs> revolt results
0: so he like uh, gives the lab the mice like a bunch of beers and then they're like i'm done and he's like come on man let's do shots yeah, yeah pretty much <laughs>
1: So, he's overseen the, um, the pill, um, it's filled with natural enzymes usually found in liver cells, and it helps the body process booze faster. Um, so not only would it prevent splitting headaches and cotton mouth, but it'd work as a treatment for cases of alcohol poisoning in emergency rooms across the country, which is really why he's searching for for this, not to cure the hangover. Um... (laughs) But he he does first have to get the mice drunk, and then he gives them the treatment. And it's about a 45% decrease in the blood alcohol levels in just four hours compared to the mice who weren't treated. Um, although the mice, of course, rarely complain about hangovers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you can just tell, like, they're just, they, you know, they turn the lights on and the mice are like, oh, come on, man.
1: Yeah. So, um there's, and it talks about there's a big business for trying to provide, um, hangover free stuff, um, but it is still in, um, testing, and it hasn't been checked for uh, any dangerous side effects, so, um, if all goes well, he should have human tests, should begin in about a year or so. And considering that he's a professor at a university, uh, this article huh. wittedly says he probably won't have a lot of trouble finding testing candidates. Because <laughs> you
0: know how college students drink all that. Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. So, so I think the, the deal is he's associating hangovers with this... This compound acetaldehyde, A-C-E-T-A-L-D-E-H-Y-D-E, acetaldehyde, I don't know, something like that. Um, and so he's just measuring the level of that in the mice, and if it's low, then he assumes that the mice don't have a hangover. Okay, I think, like, normally we totally, I feel like we give thumbs down to, like, overly excited news reports about, like, animal studies. You know, they're like, we cured Cancer! In mice. And it's always like you know, it's like it's overhyped. But in this case, I think my excitement, or like what I think is cool about this is it's it's addressing like a common problem that people are really uh that people really care about. Cause like this this guy, I mean, if he invents this thing, chances are his like UCLA will end up owning it. Or I'm not sure how it works, but do you know that? Like a lot of if you're, if you're a researcher and you work at a university and you develop, like, the next aspirin, most times, or I think in many cases, the academic institution owns the patent. So, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you spent your whole career on it. If you were employed by them, it's theirs. So, if I was him, I'd get, like, real close on this and then quit my job. Start manufacturing. No, I don't know. This is cool, though. Yeah, I thought it was uh, cool, and it would be an important um, discovery for emergency medicine. It would. I'm sometimes like, I want to at some point look more into animal testing to understand, like, in what cases it's truly necessary. Because stuff like this, I start to think, like, I mean, drinking alcohol is a choice, right? And so we're, like, torturing these mice, and I don't know, I just have, like, mixed feelings, you know? Mm -hmm. And people have said to me that, like, in some cases, animal testing is not actually necessary, like, like for cosmetics and lotions and stuff that, like, we don't actually need to, like, dump it in a bunny's eyes to understand if it's going to hurt us. Yeah, that's why there's
1: cruelty-free testing.
0: All sorts of cruelty-free products.
1: Oh, man. All right, Robin. What's your current medical fascination? Well,
0: it's kind of boring, but I've just been thinking a lot about stress levels, and I had a chance to do something called biofeedback a couple of weeks ago. Do you know what that is? No, tell me about it. So, biofeedback, in my experience was they like they hook you up to these like electrodes and you can watch the amount of muscle activity on a screen. So in my case, because my jaw is wonky, they like put these things on both sides of my face and they hooked me up to this computer and I could see that when I smiled or spoke or even imagined certain things like, you know, did something where I like thought about relaxing or whatever, like held my face in like very slightly different ways. I could watch the tension go up and down and like understand what what impact it would have and even see differences from like the left side of my face to the right side even when I thought I was making like a symmetrical movement, that there was more tension on one side than the other. And so um, so I've been thinking about like stress as a function of health just because, I-, I don't know, I'm just one of these people that can just get overwhelmed and just tends to do too much, which I think is super common. Like I even posted on Facebook about it the other week and I was just like, you know, what, what is like, what is the solution for this? Like, what do people do? How do you, how do you not do too much? And the best thing that anyone said was that one of my cousins said, practice makes perfect. And I thought that was really wise. Um, Absolutely. He's like, he's like a super cute, cool human. So shout out to my cousin, Travis, who's great. And yeah. And so I was thinking about stress and then like the whole biofeedback thing. It was interesting because they did, They like showed me where I was at my baseline. We tried all these like facial expressions and different things and they let me play around with it. Like I used to be a trumpet player. So I I started doing some kind of the types of motions I would do playing trumpet. And it was interesting to see it like spike and, and all this kind of stuff. And then they did like a, like a relaxation type type of exercise with me. And then we could see like the baseline went down a little bit. Um, I didn't have like a ton of tension to start with. So there wasn't like a lot to work with, but, but it was just really cool. I mean, It was cool to see in like real time what my body was doing until it's supposed to help you learn to relax like certain muscles or like you get immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was really, it was a really cool process. So um, I don't know how I would like encapsulate that in a word, but that whole kind of like stress, tension, um, and like understanding how things that we do impact impact all, all of our health and our stress and, you know, the way that our bodies feel. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my fascination. And Laura, we're going to have an answer to a reader question next week. So that's exciting. Um, Yeah. One of our listeners, Gail in Colorado, asked me if we could look into essential oils. Like, um, I know like doTERRA is one of the MLMs where people are selling them and like essential oils have gotten some interest and attention as, potential, you know, I don't know, things that would benefit our health. And she wanted to know if, if we would do some research and talk about it next week. And so, of course I said, yes. Yay. So there you go. Good things are coming up. So Laura, what do you think, speaking of things coming up on the horizon, what do you think is the political event that is most impacting health and health news today?
1: Um, I think that, uh, the fact that we still don't have a um, head of the Veterans Affairs is probably super impactful for um, the VA. It's one of the largest providers of healthcare for Americans and um, without having a leader of that I think it negatively impacts the ability to carry out its mission especially with the difficulties that it's had in the past years with providing um, timely service to veterans um, yeah. the VA is super convoluted and um, kind of uh, frustrating to veterans to begin with and um, having it without leadership I think also negatively impacts it even more
0: Yeah, it's just like a big bureaucratic mess in some ways. I remember working at a nonprofit in Cincinnati. We were serving um, people who were houseless. And we would sometimes have to put, like, um, people who had coverage through the VA and needed, I think it was heart surgery. We were in Cincinnati. We'd have to bus them to Cleveland in order to get the surgery because that was, like, the the VA had determined that that was, like, the most effective way and i i don't know if that was like a special case because of these people or what but there's been a lot in the news about the va not providing the type or level of medical care that i think most of us would hope that veterans are receiving so yeah i didn't even know that there was no head of the va but that certainly doesn't seem like something that's gonna help right yeah absolutely all right laura i think that's enough bad patienting for me for one week how are you feeling I feel I feel good. But
1: if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can always email us at the um hello at badpatient.com. The badpatient.com. The badpatient.com. This yep. is why I don't do this part.
0: <laughs> That's okay. It's hello at the badpatient.com. And before we get going, we will also say a special thank you to composer Evan Shaver. Thanks, Evan. He did our theme song. You can listen to his music at SoundCloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. Until next time, we are bed patient. Malpractice makes perfect.